0: explain who I am, first of all, um, uh, in a bit more detail. So I'm, I'm the Director of Policy for BBC Media Action. Now, so I'm not speaking on behalf of the BBC. That's the first thing to say. Um, uh, media Action is the BBC's international development charity. So we, we, we start where the BBC stops. Um, our job is to work with developing country media, uh, engage them, uh, and particularly in the context of this uh, conversation and this discussion, do a great deal of work around um, public engagement and public debate um, and public dialogue. Um, We do that at quite a large scale. Our governance and democracy programs last year reached something like 110 million people around the world, and we also, as a practitioner organization, also invest very substantially in research. We have about 80 researchers within the organization. Um, Now a lot of that is focused on evaluation and how effectively we are at achieving our objectives, but it's also doing large-scale surveys um, and uh, in-depth interviews and a lot of what this presentation is focused on is some of the conclusions we're getting from a combination of our research and our practice and how we're trying to put that together to inform policy. And we work at about 24 countries around the world, the vast majority of which are fragile states Um, and that's why I'm going to talk about the role of media and communication in fragile states, what we're learning from those and some of the trends across them and some of the implications of those trends for policy. So one of the reasons we work in this focus is on fragile states is because we work in them. But another one is because fragile states are a major focus of development policy at the moment. The um, European Union spends about half its entire development budget on fragile states. DFID is focused particularly strongly on fragile states. Um, and um, there's a great deal of policy focus on on, on, on how, how, to, how to achieve more, how to get fragile states on a path to, of stability and prosperity, and I'm going to sort of talk a little bit about what I mean by that. So what is a fragile state in the conventional definition? Well, the OECD defines it as a fragile region or state has weak capacity, um, weak capacity to carry out basic governance functions and lacks the ability to develop mutually constructive relations with society. Fragile states are also more vulnerable to internal or external shocks such as economic crisis or natural disasters. And that definition, and most of the work around fragile states, most of the development effort around fragile states is focused really on the state. It is focused on building up the capacity and capability of a state, the rule of law, and, uh, the, the, the reach of governance across the state. And vast funds and resources are focused really on, 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 on building up the capacity and stability of a state. But from our experience, the vast majority of fragile states are fractured states. Um, where the existence of different politics, of religions, or ethnicities makes relationships between communities difficult and where the building of shared identity can be especially challenging. And that's kind of our definition which is a complement to the OECD definition. And that's what I want to focus on, is what is happening to the politics of fragile states and what is the what are the conclusions we can draw from some of the dramatic changes in media and communication trends in fragile states for the politics, um, and development prospects of fragile states? So one of, the th- one of the quotes I like most, and which sort of, I guess, got us helped us frame a lot of the work we've done on this, including a policy briefing I've written on this, and a lot of other work, um, is a quote from Paul Collier um, in his Walls, Guns and Votes book and he says the fundamental mistake of our approach to state building has been to forget that well-functioning states are built not just on shared interests but on shared identity and if we are right and I think most people would argue we probably are if, if most fragile states are fractured states what is happening to the prospects for developing shared identity and what are the implications of media and communication trends at the moment for creating the conditions for shared identity, or indeed, the conditions for more fractured identity. And does that, those fractured identities, and the development of those, and the role of media in those, matter or not? And what we tried to do, and we've been guilty of not doing this over the years, is to try and take a relatively non-normative approach. Organizations like BBC Media Action, which exist to support media plurality, media diversity, democracy, freedom um, I- around the world, have often been accused of having a rose tinted uh, spectacles approach to the role of media, um, uh, which has tended to downplay and ignore the harm that media can do and gloss um, and maximize the narrative of a positive democratic role that media can do. And we're trying to get away from that. I'm not sure we're being entirely successful. I'm not sure we want to be entirely successful. Um, but nevertheless, a lot of our approach um, uh, has tried, been tried to be relatively non-normative. And a lot of our this presentation is based as a kind of sort of extremely crystallized version um, or, or summary of, of work we've done in quite, in quite some detail now, particularly in four countries, um, uh, in Kenya, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, and in Iraq, and also, more recently, in Pakistan, for that matter. And so, I just want to suggest there's six trends which are going on in the media, which cut across most fractured fragile states. Um, and most of these won't be a surprise, but nevertheless, I want to go through them anyway. Um, now, I don't pretend for a moment that these are universal. Um, the idea of comparing media systems in Eritrea and Burma, and Pakistan, and Afghanistan, um, and Somalia, and Kenya, and so on, is on one level ludicrous. Um, These are such massively difficult political, social, and economic contexts. But in some ways, this is ludicrous. But to some degree, there is some commonality, which I think we can point to across most fragile uh, and fractured states. The first is the obvious one, um, is a massive explosion in access to information. Um, and most of that, but not all of that, is down to this massive spread of mobile telephony. And mobile phone use has mushroomed in nearly all fragile states, growing almost sixfold in five years. From 7% of the population in 2005 to 40% in 2010, which is the latest figures we could get on fragile states, specifically that came from the OECD. And I just think that's worth bearing in mind in development terms, is that in the last ten years, and actually particularly in the last five years, the communication environment has completely been transformed. I've been working in media and communication issues and development for 30, 35 years, and the rate of change and access to information in the last five years has been uh, astonishing. Two years, three years. Access to information is obvious. Um, as we've just been hearing, and I won't touch on it very much, the appropriation of media by people with the ability to organise, form new networks and forge new or reinforce old identities has also massively um, changed and yes we see most of that the narrative and research on that in our revolution countries but it's absolutely the case in many of the other um, countries in which we work as well. So explosion of access to information, appropriation of media by m- appropriation of media by people. and then there's a fragmentation of media environments. There's a lot more media. There's not just a lot more access to information, there's an awful lot more media there's a lot more media actors um, around the world. In Afghanistan, for example, television and radio number stations have expanded by about 20% a year from 2006 onwards. Uh, and, by, um, uh, and, uh, by, and last year I think there was something like 100 terrestrial television stations and 200 FM stations. Um, And the problem in Afghanistan now is the broadcast spectrum is completely saturated. Um, um, You can't actually get any more um, radio stations on the air, particularly in some of the urban centres. So, there's more media. Um, And that's important, I think. I think it's not just that we're used to liberalisation in media, but the number of media continue to explode um, very rapidly. And alongside that, there's been a fracturing of media. Um, so there's fragmentation, but it's also been fracturing. So that media has increasingly worked to serve particular uh, communities, um, uh, ethnic, linguistic, re- uh, religious, um, political, factional. Uh, we're seeing sometimes that that's an economic process, and I'll come back to that, and sometimes it's a political process. But media serving particular constituencies within countries is an increasingly a characteristic of media landscapes that we're looking at in most of the countries in which we're uh, we're working. And alongside that is an increase in co-option of media by political, religious, ethnic and other factional interests. And the incentives for political actors and factional actors to own their own media, to influence it, to intimidate it, to buy it up, um, is growing and we are seeing that they are reaping political rewards um, by doing that, and that we are deeply concerned about the degree to which once relatively independent, often commercial, relatively self-sustaining media is now falling into the hands of particular factional um, actors, and I'll come back to that too. And across all that, as we talked about, are increasingly young, educated citizenries, um, and um, and I won't go into that in any, any detail. And the bottom line of all this is that our feeling is that a series of political trends, economic trends and technological trends are coinciding in different states to create very different political effects and political dispensations. And that's what I want to talk about now, is about how all that is perhaps working its way through. So, first of all, let's start with a country like Kenya. So Kenya, for a very long time, had kept a lid on the number of media that could exist in that country. It started liberalizing in the 1980s, and that liberalization picked up pace in the 1990s, but it wasn't until the early part of this century that uh, the Lib- Kenya decided to liberalize its broadcast spectrum to the extent of allowing vernacular media, local language media, uh, to take place to, to, to come into into being, and a major reason they did that, having resisted it for so long, was from pressure from advertisers and from companies um, in the early in the 2000s um, uh, Kenya was undergoing an economic boom, and a lot of um, uh, advertisers felt that the, the, the advertising market was becoming saturated on a mainstream Swahili and English language media. So they were pre- putting pressure to say, we want to expand into rural areas. We need to be able to reach those rural areas in people's own language. We want to have platforms for, do- for, for doing that. And so what happened was that suddenly you had, quite rapidly, in a slightly disorganized way, uh, an opening up of media into Kalanjin, into Luo, um, in, uh, um, into many of the of vernacular languages of Kenya. Um, and because it was largely down to advertising that was driving that process, that um, a lot of the people hired to be the kind of on the stations to, to run the talk shows and the discussion programs and the DJs were comics and models and entertainers. People and their personalities known um, to, to their public. And what then happened was an explosion of anger. Because for 40 years, those communities had felt that they had never had the, op- op- the potential to voice their long-held grievances um, in their own language, in their own way, to their own community. And so, actually quite quickly, the dynamics of the content of those stations became characterised by really quite tense and hostile Content which saw its um, epitome around the 2007 8 elections. Um, and what happened there was that there was just a complete inability of a kind of talk show host DJs to manage an extraordinarily difficult conversation. And that led quite often, we found in the research that we did, to um, uh, what has been relatively well documented and where one of the journalists is, is now at the International Criminal Court fa- facing trial, um, uh, a fueling of hate. Now the point of all that is to suggest that this is, this is not Rwanda. This is completely different from Rwanda where there was a kind of appropriation of media by a genocidal machine for the purpose of, of, of genocide. In Kenya, what happened was a much more accidental set of processes of politics, technology, commerce, all coinciding to create an environment which actually created a market to some degree, or, or where, where radio stations ended up provi- serving a market for anger. It wasn't a market of initially for hate, it was a market for anger. People wanted to hear anger on the radio. And I could go on about Kenya, I haven't got time to do that, but... Just very, very in a, in a nutshell, we're quite worried about Kenya now is because actually, in the last election, there was kind of a whole re- rebounding from that, and a sense that actually no, no anger could be heard on the radio or on television or in the newspapers. And that what, one of the research briefings we've done recently, where several people Kenyans have said that we're really worried but there's been a kind of peace lobotomy in the country, where that reaction has now turned into a kind of all media acting together to create a cosmetic debate rather than a real debate. So that's just one example of how those things were all coming together, all those trends are coming together, to create one outcome. I mean, if you look at Somalia, um, you could argue a completely opposite has happened. Is that after Sierra Barre fell in the 1990s, there was a real market, there, there was a huge amount of um, extremely unsavoury content on radio, where Generally, a lot of Somalis would argue um, that the radio really existed to praise and sing the virtues and communicate the agendas of different warlords in, uh, in the country. And when it became extremely factional and extremely divisive and extremely um, worrying in terms of what its actual um, implications were um, for that society. But by, when we were doing our research about three or four years ago, and and since for that matter, there there was a strong sense amongst the public that they were fed up with hearing uh, um, divisive, angry, partial, uh, untrustworthy um, uh, um, uh, information on the radio, um, and that they were looking for moderation. They were looking for balance. They were looking for something that enabled them to understand the world, looking for something that enabled them to make sense of what was going on around them, to be part of a political process, um, and to ultimately something that they could trust. And maybe part of this was also the the, the, the strong presence of of organizations like the BBC in the country, which reaches across the country. But there was no market. If you wanted to Al-Shabaab had real troubles in in, in, um, in, in Somalia, because every time they intimidated or took over a radio station, it collapsed because the, the audience collapsed. There was no market for anger in Somalia. There was no market for moderation, um, and so the most successful radio stations in Somalia are arguably those which cover multi- uh, a, a variety of perspectives. And so this is all very top-level and somewhat simplistic, and we've got a lot more detail about this. And finally, I'll talk about Afghanistan where I would argue that the, the opposite to Somalia, again, is happening. Where actually, in a process of te- a decade, in, there was no media um, in 2001 in, in Afghanistan. There were no journalists. There were no, nothing at all. And by last year, there were 10,000 people working in the media industry in Afghanistan, in an extremely vibrant, plural, not certainly not free, but increasingly democratic and increasingly effective and trusted um, media and communication environment i 've already read out some of the statistics around that, and that that 's been an astonishing story it 's been one of a few success stories arguably around um, around media in, um, uh, uh, around the transition in afghanistan um, and there 's a real legacy to be built on there, but the problem is that the, in Afghanistan the advertising market in the country, and people disagree with this, but our estimates are maybe 20 or 30 million dollars a year. And that's nothing like enough to sustain a media that's been largely created by either external private investment or very largely by external donor investment. And donors are now pulling out and retrenching. And so the, 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 that media diversity and plurality and, and dynamism is almost certainly going to shrink. And two things will happen. One of them perhaps that has to happen. And the first is that media will consolidate. It will, it will get smaller. There will be smaller numbers of groups and actors. And that problem of spectrum saturation perhaps won't be there anymore. But the second problem is it will fall into the hands of those who are prepared to pay for it. And those who are prepared to pay for it are increasingly warlords. We're already seeing it. And those who are backed by other external factional actors and by many people we talked to in Afghanistan, uh, the largest, by, far, uh, by some way, investor, uh, sorry, supporter of the media in Afghanistan is the US. But by, for many people, said that the second largest um, supporter of the media and sponsor of media in Afghanistan is Iran. And so the future of Afghanistan media looks quite grim because it suggests a much more factional um, uh, set of circumstances. Um, and a much more factional media. And so these market cont- be, 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 all these trends are playing out in different ways, sometimes in very deeply worrying ways, sometimes in very positive ways, but there is a picture of fragmentation and fracturing. And in very fragmented, fractured states, when you have very fragmented, fractured media, there is a set of concerns that arise in terms of how shared identity will be built and our biggest single concern coming out of all this is that there is nothing that we can see emerging that actually does creates a media that transcends the fracture points in society there is no market incentive for creating a national media or a media that enables a dialogue or conversation across the fracture points in society there's nothing there to make that happen there's no there's no incentive for that to come into being. And so whatever one thinks about whether increasingly um, uh, fractured media lead to increased polarization in society or not, what isn't there is something that pulls society back together again. And there's no no way, even if one wanted to, the genie can go back into the bottle of sort of unfracturing media. um, Social, and this is where we would argue but the kind of distinction between traditional legacy media and social media is often an artificial one. Increasingly what we're finding in countries is that all media, um, and only in some countries, I don't want to overdo this, but in some countries all media exists for a purpose and that purpose is to communicate an agenda, is to get your point of view across, whether it's social or traditional media. And that can be, that's quite worrying. And So that's the final thing, the worry is that there's nothing that cuts across these um, fracture points in society. And that wouldn't be such a worry if it was so absent, if it wasn't so absent from development policy or those who are really working to support fragile states. So in Afghanistan, um, as we talked, as the ambassador from European Union told us, he said, we have a strategy, long prepared strategy in this country to support security post transition, education post transition, the economy, health and so on. At no point have we sat down to work out what the future of the media is in this country. There's not anyone focused on that in any substantive strategic way. And we asked the question is how are the people of Afghanistan gonna shape their future? Where is their common identity, their common future, um, uh, their common destiny going to be shaped from within themselves, not just by their elites, if they've got no platform for a trusted national public conversation? We don't know where that's going to come from. So we're quite worried about this, um, and we don't quite know how it's going to be resolved.